The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to... We've got mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the critically acclaimed network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I am a critic as well. And for the purposes of this podcast, and this podcast only, you may refer to me as Rockmeister McCool. Thank you. Luca, do you mind not messing with the blinds? Uh, Luca has decided that uh, it's a. He, he's transformed into a disaster elemental. Yeah, he's actually like the Tasmanian devil just running around in a big tornado, and you can see his like claws out the other side. I'm not sure if any of, uh, any of you listeners have cats, but uh, do your cats do parkour? Because this one does. Yeah, he will just like leap off the off a wall and then jump around. And Luke, are we... <laughs> you can probably hear the chaos being, how we, being how we doing, in Luca? the background here. Sometimes I think uh, he sees ghosts. This is the letters episode. You get to control the uh, the conversation. Yeah. We will answer your letters. The email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, we cannot answer all of your letters, unfortunately. Uh, some of you write in quite frequently, and we're grateful for it. But yeah. we can't read all of those letters. Uh, but we get to as many as we can. Uh, and sometimes we stray from the topic. <laughs> as is our want. Sometimes somebody will write in about one topic yeah. and we'll go off on wild tangents on another topic. And that, this first letter I'm about to read addresses that. So I want to start this letters episode with a bit of an apology. Yep. Because uh, not only did we stray from the topic, but uh, they actually called me out on it on Twitter. Yeah, fair saying, enough, hey, right? Uh, you, you, we, you give our Twitter, we give you our Twitter accounts for this exact reason. Yeah, so Feel free like, to hey, call hey, us out if we do hey, something like stupid. Hey, like, I wrote in, but you didn't quite address the topic of my letter, and I said, okay, we'll get to the next letter and uh, next letters episode. And wouldn't you know it, we totally forgot to get it in the next letters episode. So. And by we, we do mean Whitney, because I do leave I'm, him in charge of the letters. That's true. I, so it's it's all on me. I wanted to apologize. So here's a letter but from... It's my fault, too. I'm, I should have written a, it down. My here's bad. a letter from Isaac. Uh, hello, Isaac. Hello. Uh, hey, Bibs and Rock. Sorry for the long letter. Don't ever apologize. Uh, thanks for reading my letter about millennials and Gen Z. It wasn't necessarily as well written as I wanted it to be, and for that I apologize. Oh, pish. Yeah. Um, if we understand your point, it's fine. I must say I'm a little disappointed by your response because I was hoping you'd talk more about how minorities' perspectives are often forgotten when it comes to critiquing certain generations. What certain franchises meant to specific peoples of color is a lot different from what it meant to white people. I think this may have, uh, may have been due to the fact that how I framed the letter... Anyways, a recent example of this is when I watched The Princess and the Frog. My family and I were shocked by how it handled some black characters and issues, yet I talked to younger generations, especially young women of color. They reject my critiques and focused on how much it meant to them and why. While on the one hand, white people may watch it and get a kick out of the stereotypical animal character, the alligator in this case, who is representing a black caricature, just like most Disney films before. While I still have critiques of the films, I can't help but be happy for those that got so much out of it. Once again, I love Gen Z, fuck J.K. Rowling, and I'm of the mindset that destroying and pointing out the things prior generations did wrong is necessary. My point was never to ask uh, was never to ask anyone to, quote, not make fun of millennials, which Whitney seemed to have pointed out. 
for that, I apologize. I just uh, think there is a lack of acknowledgement of people of color in these instances, which ironically seems to have been left out in the entire response uh, originally, uh, which ended in Whitney pointing out that I will continue to make fun of them because it's funny. I agree, but that wasn't what I was getting at. Um, yes, I will. And I also apologize for yes. straying so far from the point. Uh, as gentlemen who have seen moments change and evolve over time, do you think there's any way to have a more nuanced and healthier hand in in uh, taking down the system that stands in our way? Your avid supporter, Isaac. Uh, uh, that is a great question. Mm. Um, we we obviously we covered that from a different angle before, and we apologize for yeah. that. Um, the the fundamental question before we get to that second part. Uh, of um, you know how various people of color uh, are often underrepresented in the conversation about cinema. That has a lot to do with who controls that conversation, and who yeah, controls that yeah. conversation is a lot of white dudes. And this is a podcast hosted by two white dudes. We are two cis white dudes. That's yeah. just that's our lot. Um, yeah, sorry. There about was that. there was a big. Uh, uh, conversation that was started a couple of years ago by Brie Larson, who, uh, well, not just by, Brie not just Larson. By she, was, she was inspired she, by a lot of, she brought it into the fore, but, well. but uh, yeah. this was actually going on a lot at places like Rotten Tomatoes that was pointing out that most of the critics on Rotten Tomatoes were white guys yeah. and they were reviewing all of the movies and giving all of the perspective on all kinds of movies from a wide swath of filmmakers. And, it meant that this conversation was being steered in a very specific way just because of the experience of the critics uh, reviewing. Uh, critics, no matter what walk of like the life they come from, like to think of themselves as being very open-minded, but if you're a white guy, your experience is going to be limited yeah. by, by your race and your gender. So uh, there was a big push uh, at Rotten Tomatoes over the course of the last two or three years to start to expand how like who's going to be approved and... Uh, you know, essentially change their standards so that more voices could be included. Yeah, and we're seeing this uh, uh, more across the whole uh, industry. Yeah. Uh, April and, uh, Rain uh, and, started the Oscars so white hashtag, yeah, and that led yeah. to the Oscars finally realizing just how incredibly skewed exactly they exactly. are. And yeah. and uh, that conversation, Isaac, to address your letter a little bit more directly, also pertains to nostalgia the way certain generations look back on movies. Uh, when the critics are all white dudes, they're all going to be talking about white dude movies. And often the movies mm. that they grew up with mm. uh, were from a less inclusive time yeah. in cinema than we have now. And what we have now still isn't inclusive enough, but it, there have been improvements. Yeah. Uh, but like throughout the history of cinema, there has been a concerted effort to sideline the experiences and the stories mm. of people of color, uh, the queer community, women often in many cases, uh, and and many other uh, uh, groups besides. Uh, and as a result, the white men were telling the stories. White men were telling stories largely about white men. Mm. And when there were stories about not white men, oftentimes they were being told by white men. Yeah, And that is just stupid and bullshitty, mm. right? I mean, it's it's, it's absurd. But as a result, that skewed the conversation into either stories of white men or stories about non-white men from the perspective of white men, mm. as though that was some kind of a baseline. And so the movies that those white male film critics, we are not excluded from that, uh, grew up with were skewed heavily in one direction. And we, the, the solution to that over time is to highlight and promote 
critics of color, mm-hmm. filmmakers of color, people from different communities, uh, well, and I mean, actually like make a concerted effort to move in the other direction and to acknowledge, understand, and appreciate other mm-hmm. perspectives, yeah. so that we we yeah we're we're not just in, in a bubble. Yeah, yeah. Um, we uh, we occasionally have conversations about the notion of canon on on our various podcasts. Like, what what does it mean to have like a central canon of great movies? And yeah. some people think it should be limited to like a list of one hundred. That's kind of arbitrary. Very arbitrary. Um, I, I appreciate when Roger Ebert came up with his list. He just called it "great movies," not the greatest mm. movies. Like, here is a movie; it is great. And this is not going to be hundreds of them. And this is um, not a conversation that's limited to cinema. People often no, talk no, about no. like the great works of literature mm. or the great paintings or whatever. Yeah. What are the works of art that to understand these works of art is to get at least the gist of yeah. artistic now, history. If you're choosing uh, pieces of art that are coming from uh, times of racism and oppression and all the I. great e. i.e. history, um, you're inevitably going to run into this problem that the canon is all done by white guys and it's all being perpetuated by other white guys. Mm-hmm. And... It's our responsibility as critics and as people who try to think of generations as uh, sort of whole units to understand that there's more perspectives than just this uh, white guy class classicism, essentially, that's Mm -hmm. been uh, hung on history in this sort of uh, uh, rose colored kind of way. Uh, And yeah, we're looking back at a lot of these movies. Yeah, I'm I'm. I'm in my early seventies. Uh, no, I'm I'm Generation X or Y, depending on what what. Uh, how you Which makes look you, at it. to be fair, very old. I'm incredible by uh, by you know the way pop culture is measured. Yes, I'm incredibly old, and uh, you know I look back over the films that were venerated by my peers, and by I say when I say my peers, I do mean other white guys. So I'm looking at all the movies that are sort of being held up as these nostalgic classics today. They're rarely about women. They're hardly ever about uh, people of color. Uh, And people are much more willing to go to bat for, like, Evil Dead 2 than they are for something a little bit more penetrating, like Boys in the Hood. Uh, because, uh, Because it's something white guys enjoyed in the dark. Now I'm not saying well, also, also, that... also there is a sad, uh, 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 quality where a lot of the publications are pursuing what they consider to be the white guy audience. Yeah. yeah. And as a result, a, an article about evil dead Two might actually reach more, might get more clicks mm. amongst the people that they're marketing towards yeah. than something else. Yeah, you know, something yeah. about tales from the hood. If you want to stay mm. within the, the horror genre. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And it's, that's a, that's a uh, stupid tragedy is what that and, is. And, uh, this, what I appreciate is there, uh, that movie dope or, uh, Keanu. Yeah. Yeah. Point, those are some of the only films I've seen that pointed out that a lot of this sort of nerdy pop culture stuff is also belongs to people of color. Yeah. It's not just like white nerdy guys like us who are controlling the conversation, that there are other perspectives on this that we rarely see represented in criticism and in sociology and fictionally in films. Now I want to make something clear. We are, uh, we're, we're, we're attempting to have this conversation right now. And again, mm. we're, we're two dudes. Uh, Whitney is bisexual. Mm. I am the cisgender heterosexual male. We, we, I, I can't control that, but that's like the, yeah. the, the perspective that I have. 
Uh, and I want to take this opportunity while we're attempting to have this conversation to the best of our abilities uh, to uh, uh, recommend some film critics of color mm. oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, who we would highly recommend to you. Um, this list could be infinitely long and there are plenty of articles online uh, well, what, that focus yeah. on exactly this and highlighting mm. these critics. But I just wanted to take an opportunity to mention a few names yeah. what, just what to I, get you started. Actually, what I appreciate about this current uh, generation of critics is that it's predominantly women. At least that's mm. what it seems like to me. Most of the most, uh, most important voices are, are women in, in mm. film criticism or women these days. Yeah, often, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so uh, offhand, uh, Valerie Complex, mm-hmm. uh, absolutely brilliant film critic. Uh, yeah. Jordan Searles yeah. uh, has written some yeah. of the most just just pointed mm. and penetrating uh, uh, articles of, I've read in the last few yeah. years, just um, in general. I'm very she's, fond she's of, of Carla Renata, um, mm-hmm. uh, a.k.a. The Curvy Critic. You can find her on Twitter. Yeah. Um, there's, of course, Odie Hederson. Mm. Um, uh, Ingu Kang. Ingu uh, Kang is excellent. She just wrote, um, she wrote the, the for the for, for Parasite the criteria, criterion, yeah. the Criterion edition. Uh, she wrote the the booklet for Parasite. Yeah, uh, Jen Yamato is of course absolutely yeah. brilliant. Justin Chang at the LA Times. Yes, oh, what a just, brilliant writer! Like. Justin Chang is so good, it makes me mad. <laughs> I, 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 I will never be that good. Like yeah, that's just yeah. all there is to it, and I just have to just accept that. Mm. But. Like, oh, so talented. <laughs> All of these people are, are more talented than we are. Yeah. And there's many, 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 many more besides. We mm. could do nothing but that list. Um, but seriously, you can just, you can Google. Mm. A lot of people have done really wonderful articles about that. And um, please, start clicking around. Mm. Um, we're very, very grateful that you listen to our shows and or listen to our perspectives. And, um, and again, we just fell into this because we're neighbors. But, like... We, we we have a passion for the art, but uh, we also understand that our view is is skewed the way it is. Yeah, and and everyone's view is skewed towards their own personal perspective. Mm. But the idea, the problem is, too many perspectives have been sidelined in favor of the same perspectives over and over yeah, and over yeah. again. Even if there's some variation within that, they're missing big, big, mm. big observations. Yeah. So, uh, please, the, what we can do to fix this is we can help actually uh, boost signals and make sure that when we read about various films that we aren't reading the same critics over and over and over again and mm-hmm. that we are at the very least attempting to cast a wider net and because that's one of the beautiful things about art criticism is that we, we you can look at a piece of art and just have your own perspective and that's enough and that can be beautiful. But when you look at it through the lens of people who know what they're talking about and come from different walks of life, you gain not just their perspective on that art, you gain, I think for me, a greater perspective on the world. Mm. And that has been incredibly wonderful for me. And I really wanted yeah. to be a part of that ever since I was very little. Yeah. yeah. This whole notion of, uh, and we talk about this all the time. You can't, you can't take politics out of art. All art is political. Yep. It's all sociological. It all points to the world that it came from. It all reflects a point of view from the world it came from. And, having various perspectives on a single piece of art is one of the more valuable things we can get. Yeah. Uh, and that's what criticism is for, not to toot our own horn. Yeah. Um, so, um, again, I hope we did mm. the topic a little bit more justice this time. It's a big, big, big topic. Yeah. And again, 
we can only speak with so much authority mm-hmm. about it given our own personal yeah. backgrounds and our personal and, perspectives. And, and, and our um, age is also a part age, of Of course. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I'm really, really, really valuing. There's some really wonderful criticism uh, emerging from people who were younger than us yeah. and not growing mm-hmm. up with these same canonized films and people who are developing brand new perspectives and brand new canons of films yeah. that they believe actually should be uh, historically significant and oftentimes brushing aside some of the things, established things that we we yeah. had considered to be canon. Yeah, and and often rightly so. Mm. And that has been really eye-opening for me and I love mm. seeing that grow. And uh so yeah, I I mm. I I hope we've done this conversation at, at least some justice. Uh but there's a lot more to be said by other even yeah. better film critics than us and uh, we encourage mm-hmm. you to seek out those critics. Also, uh, as as an old 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 man, uh, I'm always <laughs> always very surprised when I discover that a film I had seen, written a, a review of, or reviewed, mm. and kind of just pushed off to the side, like a decade later, has now become like a canonical classic. Mm-hmm. I, like I was too old to really kind of get into the cult. Something mm-hmm. like The Perks of Being a Wallflower, for instance. Yeah. I haven't seen it. Uh, it didn't register for me because I'm too old to be part of the passionate following. It's about yep. younger people and younger people really attach themselves to that. Yep. And uh I hope to see it someday. I wanna I wanna see what it's <laughs> well, about. Nothing's yeah. stopping you. You can you can it's difficult to make the yeah. time, I know, yeah. but like you, you, you usually get around to it. Yeah. And, and at the same time, throw Space Jam in the bin. Yeah. We can stop heard, can- canonizing some, that one. I heard someone refer to the the live action version of Casper as mm. a family classic the other day, and I was like, <laughs> no, that one I think is just old. <laughs> it, it came out. It came out in the mid nineties. That's true. Well, that's that's pretty old now. Yeah. But I don't know. But I don't know about classic. Have Maybe you, I should revisit it. But I heard the, I saw uh, it a couple of times when it came out, and it was. Wasn't that good? Yeah. You heard the conversation. They're going to do a sequel about how Casper died. No. So Casper the Little Dead Boy. What a, no, hor- that's what not a horrible thing. idea. They're yeah. actually doing that? They're actually, they're, I've, it's been floated. How did he die? Oh, like, what's, what's canon there? Like, what's the story? How did he die? Because he's a child yeah, Matt Groening, who is uh, dead. Matt Groening posited that. Uh, Casper is the ghost of Richie Rich. A lot of people yeah. have suggested that they, because they, they look, look very alike. similar. Yeah. Yeah. Which Har- is funny. Har- Harvey Comics, similar art. Yeah. Which is very, very funny. But mm. seriously, that raises the question, how did Casper die? I, I think in the 95 movie, like he, it was an accident or something. It was I, something... Think, I think they sidestepped it as hard as they could, yeah. if memory serves. <laughs> I really don't remember. It was something really tragic. Yeah. Like it was like locked in a basement and his parents forgot about him and he yeah. starved. That would be you know, something really horrible. Or maybe it was something like really cool. Like, he, like, <laughs> like he was like defending his mother from wolves. Yeah. Defending his mother from wolves. He had to like steal the family car and like tie meat to the rear fender and drive <laughs> the wolves off, off, a cliff. Off, a, <laughs> off a cliff. Problem is now the wolves are also ghosts and they still hunt him. And, <laughs> and he jumped off the car and had his, uh, wing gliding suit and flew over to an island where a tentacle monster reached out of the sea and anyway um anyway that took a hard right turn uh but uh, in any case i really hope we did a bit more justice yeah. to that email so thank you once again for writing in uh here is a letter from b peterson hello b peterson uh b peterson reads hello. infrequently yeah. um uh, b and peterson b- co-hosted one of our more popular episodes That's of the right. year we, we did a list of uh queer films and yeah. b peterson queer films was that we co-host. highly recommended that meant a lot to mm. us and uh that's a really really great episode and it led to a lot of people still writing in recommending mm. queer films that didn't make that list due to time where we weren't <laughs> aware of them and it's been really illuminating so thank you everybody who's been writing in but uh, B. Peterson uh, writes uh, Dear William and Whitney it is very late at night or very early 
early in the morning. Today is November 2nd, 2020. Uh, that is the date we are recording this. Oh, so this is a brand new letter. Um, this week may very be, be one of the more stressful weeks in our country's history, depending on how people might react to the election results. Uh, we're recording this, uh, I think, just as the first ballots are being cast on the East Coast, yeah. like at midnight. They're like small towns, like towns that are so small, like they have like double digit populations that are already reporting in just like who, who won yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people are so, just like oh joe biden won this town of 20 people and i'm like i don't know if that's indicative of anything but i guess it's interesting and so, i guess yeah, well, we're, we're really we're really trying to yeah. fill the time uh, let's see uh, in, including and especially 45 himself i felt my anxiety and depression and panic attacks all ramping up and i'm taking drastic measures in order to preserve my well-being Please do. Just mm-hmm. preserve your well-being. When it's important. Uh, yeah. In a few hours, I will be driving to a friend's house, cutting off all my access to the internet, wise, and living offline for seven days, just me and my Agnes Varda box set. <laughs> oh, that sounds blissful. That doesn't uh, sound like a vacation. Uh, that sounds nice. My goal is to be able to spend the week without any information filtering in from the outside world when the time is up. Hopefully, I'll be able to learn what happened without getting drowned in every single ugly detail. Uh, American Utopia, the David Byrne Spike Lee concert film, is one of the better films of the year. Okay. Um... That's yeah. Change change the topic. Okay. Uh, it's no. Uh, have you watched it yet? Still haven't watched it yet. I haven't had the time. Right. I, I'm going to. I love David Byrne. I'll get there. All right. Uh, it's no stop making sense, but then again, nothing is. True. Uh, the film is. Oh, what was I watching? I was watching Reanimator. Mm. Uh, oh, and they have a stop Halloween, making sense poster on Barbara sense. Crampton's yeah. wall. Yeah. That's right. Oh wait, or is it Dan Kane's wall? It's Dan Kane's wall. Okay. But yeah, yeah they, there's a stop making sense prominent poster prominently displayed. Yeah. So movie. you know he's cool. Like he's <laughs> he's he's a bit of a milk toast protagonist really for reanimator but he's got to stop making sense posters so he's pretty cool well he has to be able to be pushed around by a, a kook like herbert west uh, yeah, yeah but um, that, that that just gives you a little yeah. bit of info he's uh, the film is your typical con- typical concert film very friendly presented but burn has a focus beyond the performance he is interrogating what the usa is what it should be and what it could be there's a number late in the film that is a cover of a song by janelle monet the number is uh caused the euphoric pins and needles sensation i described when speaking on, on portrait of a lady on fire and a letter mm. responded to back in March. American Utopia is only the third film to elicit this reaction, and therefore it deserves an unreserved recommendation. Um, uh, again, I, I always go back to him because he, he looms large in my imagination as a critic, but uh, Ebert was once asked, what's the difference between a three and a half star film and a four star film? And he says, my spine tingles. Like he got a tingly sensation, yeah. and if if that ever if that happened, he's new. Okay, something would, profound is happening to me. I I if that were the case, I wouldn't give a lot of four star reviews. Like yeah. I just there's there. I mean I mean very very. Few. Well, it, it would depend on how much caffeine I had. Like if oh. I if I was like really over caffeinated, I'm gonna be tingling all throughout the movie. I probably throughout like the 2010s only really got that like really profound sensation from mm. a movie like maybe half a dozen times. Yeah. Like it's it's rare and it's special and it's mm. important and those are the movies you revisit over and over again and you treasure mm. and they're not the only ones. Four star movies, you know, don't have to be spine tinglers, mm. but you know the ones that do, those are the special ones, aren't they? Yeah. 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 Um, William Whitney, I've lost a lot of faith in my nation in the last couple of years, and uh, and we are at a point now that if the worst case scenarios do come to pass, I may never again regain that faith. So I ask you, what does it mean to you? to be a citizen of the United States. I say United States and not America because America consists of dozens of countries, not just ours. What does it mean to you? And is there any reason to hope that this nation will overcome its in- innumerable and miserable failings? Stay safe. Thank you. See you in the next one, B. Peterson. Uh, to me, B. Peterson actually mm. summed it up pretty well. Mm. Uh, what does it mean to be a citizen of the United States? 
It means to be part of a country that hopes to overcome its miserable failings. <laughs> there you go. Uh, you know, the United States was born out of what were considered, I think aptly so, the miserable failings of a monarchy, mm-hmm. of miserable failings of colonialism. And built into that framework from page one were the miserable failings of uh, racism, slavery, slavery yeah. sexism, and uh, plenty of other isms that were fucking awful and still are. Um, and over time, too much time, we, we've we been trying to progress as a society. And that, I think, is the hope of yeah. this country, is that we mm. can improve. I mean, that's why that's why the Constitution is supposed to be a living document. Yeah. It's opposed to all of those things. Like, you can't change the Second Amendment. Y- yeah, it's an amendment. They're all supposed to be changeable if necessary. Because... As fucked up as many, if not all, of the founding fathers were, at least they were able to to have like enough introspection to know that they didn't have all the answers, yeah. and that eventually people will perfect this later. And again, that's that's small consolation, but it's a lot more than I'm seeing from a lot of politicians we have now, yeah. who seem to think that everything they say is gospel and that nothing will ever be different ever. We see a lot of people in the in the politics now who say that like you know we're we're like originalists with the constitution the constitution is originally based on the idea that the constitution is flawed mm. and needs to be fixed over time yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so for me america to be an american is to be someone who acknowledges that america is inherently flawed from day one and that it needs to be constantly fixed constantly, and so yeah. hopefully that, that we... we will continue to fix it and if it breaks again we have to keep fighting continue to fix it that is the state of being an american yeah, the um There was a rather hurtful piece of literature in American history by Horatio Alger called Struggling Upward. Mm. And uh, it it more than any other piece of art, I think, kind of defined American politics. And it's this, that is the American dream, the myth of the American dream, the idea that you can be born in America on any station, Mm -hmm. but the resources are in this country to uh, succeed eventually. All it requires is hard work. It's a very uh, simple philosophy. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a very one, inaccurate philosophy. It's an inaccurate philosophy, and it's held very deeply by many politicians. Mm-hmm. This Horatio Alger struggling upward. Hard work will equal success. Mm-hmm. Failure means you're not working hard enough. Yeah, it's very fucking uh, judgy is what it is. Uh, yeah, yeah. If yeah. you haven't succeeded, um, it means you're bad. Like, that's mm-hmm. what it basically boils down to. It sounds good when you look at it one way. It sounds really bad when you realize that if you haven't succeeded at all your goals, it's saying that you're it's all your fault. Yeah. If if you, you have, nothing else has mattered, nothing else has been yeah. a factor. That's and, nonsense. And and it and of course leads to a lot of really horrendous modern philosophies. That if somebody as uh, of of a disenfranchised uh, group mm-hmm. that is constantly struggling and is not succeeding, then clearly they're simply not working hard if, enough. If the institution they don't want literally enough, yeah. exists to oppress uh, a group of people, that's so a it's, huge fucking factor, isn't yeah. it? Now, what I, what I take from Horatio Alger, mm. uh, if, if you blend it with the Federalist Papers and the Constitution, is that we constantly are in a state of struggle. We are struggling upward, but not on an individual economic basis, mm-hmm. on a utopian basis. We're trying to struggle and criticize our own government and change it in such a way that we can make it better. That's the whole point, Mm -hmm. is that we founded a country where we're allowed to look at the system, criticize the system, 
talk directly down to the leaders yeah. and say, you need to fix problems that are now arising. I mean, there's a reason why the First Amendment mm-hmm. is freedom of speech. And the mm-hmm. reason why freedom of speech also stre- expands and stretches into freedom of the press. Because mm-hmm. these we need to be able to speak truth to power. If that couldn't happen, mm-hmm. then the American Revolution wouldn't have been possible. So they understood the mm-hmm. significance of that. Um, but look... What? We, we've come face to face on too many damn occasions, in some cases on a daily basis, often, if not entirely on a daily basis, of the failings mm. of the United States. Does it mean that it's hopeless? No, I completely disagree with that. Does it mean that it sometimes feels hopeless? Hell yes. Mm. And that's there, there, are, there are days where, listen, it's election day. This episode is going up on election day. If you have already turned this podcast off because you can't stand to hear this right now, I totally get it. Mm. I totally get it. I I would too. Or, or if we're get, getting too political. I get it. But yeah. listen to what we're talking about. It's election day. This is every single American citizen is supposed to be political, if only some of the time. Uh, that's You're right. As an American, that's the whole point. Um, but I, listen, you you have to, to also take care of yourself. That is super important. Mm. At this point, if you've already voted, which I just looked at the numbers, about 100 million people have already voted. About 140, before Election Day. Yeah. Before Election Day. About 140 million people total voted in 2016. And 100 million people have voted already now, before Election Day. That's astounding. If you have voted, that's about all you can do right now. And if things don't go well, we'll have to keep fighting tomorrow. But if you need to take the day, unplug, not look at it, Whoever, whatever happens will have happened tomorrow. That's totally okay. Mm-hmm. Go hunker down. Watch your favorite movies. Read your favorite book. Listen to your favorite music. Or just do nothing. Be peaceful somewhere. Snuggle with your cats or your dog or your fish. I don't know how you do that, but figure it out. <laughs> Snuggle your fish. It, we're, we're doing the best we can. Vote if you haven't already. If you have, it's okay to take a breather for a little bit. And it, hopefully things will get better. And if they don't, it's on us to make them better. And we'll keep fighting. A big part of being American is the freedom to hole up in a cabin and watch Agnes Varda movies. That's a big part of it. That, that was actually originally going to be in the Constitution, but they hadn't invented movies or Agnes Varda yet. They knew she was coming. Oh, they yeah. knew. Like, yeah, like, yeah. As soon as we have an Agnes Varda, you're, you're going to have freedom, like free access to a movie. Yeah. Go go watch The Gleaners and Die. Go watch Cleo from 5 to 7. Go. <laughs> Cleo from 5 to 7. So I'm good. Yeah. Go watch Vagabond. Okay, we need to move on. <laughs> okay. We need to move on. Thank uh, you for writing in. Thank you for writing yeah, um, in. Lot, lot of heady topics. Okay. Um, Do we have anything that's about like cotton candy or something? Uh, well, here's a letter from Hayden. It starts, Howdy. Uh, yesterday I was talking to a friend and I mentioned how the Halloween series is actually a bad movie franchise. Hmm. My explanation is that outside a few movies, the series as a whole is filled with mediocre to outright terrible movies. Compare this to the stellar Final Destination series, which simil- similarly only two of the films are capital G great, the second and the fifth. But as the as a whole, they're solid. The this fifth. is I would say the second and the third are the, the sort of the highest. Well, let's, well, we'll, yeah. let's finish the whole. That's just. Right. I don't know if I've ever heard anyone say the fifth is one of the great ones. That's mm. an interesting perspective. I'm curious about that. But let's move mm. on. Let's let's keep um, reading it. This is how I judge a franchise. I base the quality of a franchise not on 
if each installment is awesome, but instead look at its consistency. This is why I wouldn't categorize Star Wars as a good franchise, as the whole point of the movies range from mediocre to bad. Thoughts? Uh, you actually, William, yeah. uh, when you were uh, editor over at Crave Online, uh, once assigned uh, me and a couple other uh, authors this very... Uh, article this very idea yeah we tried to get a bunch of authors together and talk about the greatest movie franchises as as they average out that is like uh, star wars okay star wars is a great movie Uh, everybody loves the empire strikes back yeah uh return of the jedi contested there's also the holiday special a lot of people Mm -hmm. like the 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 george lucas directed prequel films are now being sort of relitigated some people like them more than others but they were not they've not traditionally been popular of of much maligned for a long time and it's it's uh, a spotty franchise mm. if you look at it as on individual basis and a lot of people Mm. are really forgiving about it because they enjoy the overall story but if you look at it as individual films mm. it's not very consistent is it and it's because it started out so high same with like Texas Chainsaw Massacre Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre classic part two kooky Leatherface Uh, it's violent Next Generation (laughs) Uh, okay I find Next Generation fascinating but good is an exaggeration it's it's really awful it's awful but I find it hypnotic that's the one with uh, Matthew McConaughey with a cybernetic Mm. leg and Mm. Renee Zellweger and it's basically like this it's basically like a really overacted Tennessee Williams play, like an amateur theater, except they're also <laughs> but they're eating cannibals, each other. Yeah, yeah it, it 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 wants to work, but it can't. And, and there's it's a big there's a big twist at the end that the the oh this, the, oh, the, back, so the backward weird. the backwoods cannibal family are actually government agents. Yeah, who are like assassins who are murdering certain people to or like, are, to are like city keep dwellers. certain yeah. like Americana ideals. Like, oh God, that's yeah, fucking it, weird. I almost so forgot strange. about that. So there's that, yeah. uh, and of course there's the remake, which is gorgeous, but kind of shallow even compared to the original. There's the prequel to the remake, which is very repetitive. There's Texas Chainsaw 3D, which is very fun, but also very stupid, and the chronology makes no sense. And then there's the new Leatherface, which is just feels like a copy of a copy of a copy. And I, I haven't even seen the new Leatherface. So like, it's a famous franchise, mm. but it's actually only got like two, maybe three good installments in it. Yeah, And that can be enough. Sometimes a franchise is just like one good film. Eh, eh, mm. eh. Remember how good the, this franchise could be? Cool. Eh, eh, eh. This one's pretty good too. And that's enough to keep it like alive. Yeah. And I find that horror fans in particular if we're talking about the horror franchises are often very forgiving Hmm. and sometimes they're forgiving pretty quickly. Like I've noticed that over the course of my life, practically every installment of Friday the 13th, except for Friday the 13th part two (laughs) has had a period of time where it was maligned where people just weren't into it or it wasn't popular or people were criticizing Hmm. it like nobody's business. And now amongst the people I talk to and read, it seems like the general consensus is that there really hasn't been an unwatchable Friday the 13th movie, and they're all kind of equally fun in this, they were just trying anything yeah, kind of way. And so we just kind of like the idea of it, and we have a certain affection for it, and as a result, we're pretty forgiving about it. Um, and Halloween, uh, I would say there are more good ones than that. I think uh, Halloween 1 is great. A lot of people love Halloween 2. I don't. Uh, it's okay. Just don't love it. Halloween, Halloween three is crazy. I don't love it, but it's crazy. So that's I cool. Think, I, I think, think Halloween that... four is rock solid. Actually, I think it's a pretty just hmm. excellent slasher. I really do think it's good. Yeah, it's, it's it's almost like um 
like a baseline reading. That that was sort of the uh, that was the first reboot, really. Yeah, yeah they were going. just trying to get it back to its yeah. basics and like try to establish the franchise mm-hmm. as a standalone thing. I think it does a good job. Five's okay. But, Six makes no sense no matter what version you watch. Seven is great. I think well, seven's really rock solid. I, I think I think if you just watch one and seven, you're kind of okay on Halloween, even including the new David Gordon Green movie. Yeah. I like the new David Gordon Green movie a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's hardly perfect, but there's so much good shit about it. Mm-hmm. Um, ha- Rob Zombie's Halloween, I've like softened towards over the years. Just because it, it was a, a little bit more ambitious than what we yeah, see in some yeah, of the sequels. It, it, it did its own thing. I think yeah. it kind of missed the point, but it's its own thing, and I can't be too mad at it. Halloween 2 is pretty cool. Like, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2... I kind of admire that movie because if you watch, if you watch a kooky movie, if you watch yeah. the entire Halloween franchise, like before Hall- Rob Zombie's version, every including like everything from like Halloween to Halloween Resurrection, and you realize just how many bad ideas are there in that franchise, and just how many things didn't work. Mm. And if you erased all those things and you only left in the good ideas, that's what Rob Zombie took all of them and put them in one film. <laughs> I mean, they're all in Halloween. Rob Zombie's Halloween too, and I really like Rob Zombie's Halloween too. I admire its ambition and its uh, and its moxie. Um, is it a bad franchise? I mean, you could look at it two ways. One, it's inconsistent, so maybe yeah. On the other hand, people still have affection for it, so it's got to be doing something right. Um, I think that's uh, you could say that for Star Wars. You could say that for a lot of other movie franchises. They're inconsistent. James Bond is wildly inconsistent, but people still dig it. So it's got to be doing something right. Hmm. Um, in ter- we, I've written a couple of times articles about like the most consistent movie franchises, and I feel like we might have even covered it on the on this. Uh, we've got mail before, but probably a long time ago. Um, um, what are some of the more consistent movie franchises, regardless of whether or not they're all top tier, but they're all pretty good. Hmm. Uh, we've talked recently about Tremors. Pretty, yeah, pretty solid straight through. Yeah, yeah. Even the worst really... Tremors movie is very entertaining. Yeah. Uh, Final Destination. Uh, the worst Final Destination movie, I think, is the fourth one, and even mm. that's got some great kills. So yeah. they're they're all pretty good. Um, let's see what else is uh, pretty solid. Fast and Furious is pretty consistent. Uh, I think four again, the is, fourth one is is not the good one. Fourth is not good. It's not the good one, but the fourth one did get all the pieces in place so that we could get the franchise where it needed to be. Mm. I'm also not a huge fan of two, but they're all watchable, fun movies. You, and you like, are you're not a huge fan of two. Th- two's okay. I don't love oh, it. I, I like two a lot. That's the one with <laughs> the the big uh, traffic accident at the beginning with the logging truck. That's Final Destination. I'm talking about Fast and Furious. Oh. There was a big logging truck in one of those movies, too. Sorry, I was thinking of something different. No, it's fine. Uh, but no, Fast and Furious is is pretty consistent, all things mm-hmm. considered, especially for an action movie franchise. Uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I think that's one of the reasons why they get so much credit, is because... They are consistently watchable. They're consistently movies. entertaining. Yeah. There's like a couple of ones that I would consider to be bad movies, and even those, if you like put them on and said, Bibs, you have to watch this, I'd be like... All right, there's some good stuff in Thor: The Dark World. Like, it's not a complete wash. Like, yeah, and the vast majority of them are like rock solid three star action movie escapist entertainments, and mm. occasionally they peak. And I think like the worst one is like one and a half or two stars. So <laughs> that's pretty impressive. I think mm. it's one of the, and that's I think it's one of the reasons why the DCEU has these this interesting crop of fans because. That group of films, the superhero movies that Warner Brothers have been putting out, very wildly in quality, but they very wildly because they're making big swings. 
Yeah, the, and they're, they're I think... trying things. Bless them, they are. Whether mm. or not they work, and so when they work, they work great, or at least yeah. they make a huge impact. And when they fail, they f- tend to fail pretty hard. Um, so a lot of people appreciate that level of commitment to trying things. And also a lot of people appreciate consistency because if you go see an MCU movie, you know, after over 20 films, the odds are exceptionally good. You're going to have a good time. Hmm. That That's, I mean, damn, that's brand loyalty, right? That's, that's <laughs> if every time, that's why you keep going to the same restaurant because you've been there 20 times and it's hmm. always good. Right. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> might not be the greatest cuisine in the world, but damn it, it's consistent. It's, it's going to satisfy you. Know? you each it's always time. there, same you know? kind of way. It's going to satisfy you each time. Any other franchises like you can think of um, that are like consistently good? Uh, they're a long film series that I'm a big fan of. Like uh, I like those. I like Hellraiser so much. Hellraiser one and two are really good. Yeah, those two are uh, great. Three, four is uh, three. Is nice. Three's eh, four. Um, four four's not, four's four's, got some neat ideas. You know, it, it's, yeah. It's it's not bad because it's lacking ideas. Oh, yeah. you, you can say that, even though it's yeah. an Alan Smithy film. Kevin Yeager directed that one, but he wanted his name taken off. Yeah, um, the straight to video ones are all pretty crappy. Oh god, some of them are really bad. Yeah, but uh, I I actually kind of liked Hellraiser Judgment uh, just because it was so. Again, it was dealing with like bigger ideas and newer when, ideas. When they were dealing with the mythology, I was interested, but it's still yet another like. Well, cop the, on the, the hunt for all a the serial cop killer. Stuff is not interesting in Hellraiser. They did that Judgment, like eight, but, uh, like not eight times. They didn't have that many straight to video sequels, but like over half straight to video sequels. Have yeah, the they same did. Plot. There, there are nine straight to video. Oh no, there's, yeah, but uh, not eight of them are about cops. There's five, like five, four of them are about cops. There's ten Hellraiser movies, and and uh, five through ten are all straight to video. Yeah. And, and they're talking about doing a series. Tec- uh, that's not true. It. Revelation technically had a blink and you'll miss it, the theatrical release. Did it really? Yeah, right. it was released in like two theaters and it has a box office mojo page. Right. Technically it was released. Technically they could ask questions about that on the Schmodown. Actually, that reminds me, I haven't had a chance to say this uh, on a podcast mm. yet. You did very well at that horror free. Oh, congratulations. Thank you, yeah. that, that, those are always fun. And yeah. I was like, the, horror is a little bit my niche, I guess, when it yeah. comes to those trivia things. So yeah, it was, it was a you pleasure, did great. pleasure to take part. You did really, really great. Just wanted to give you that yeah. credit. D- didn't win, but that's okay. Yeah. Only well, one person can. Yeah, like um, two, but hey, uh, anything else to say about franchise consistency? I mean, yeah, it's a factor. Um, mm. but again, as I as I was saying, you know, it's not the only factor, and well, sometimes and- there's the overall just affection you have for it can be completely impervious to inconsistency, mm. and I'm- that is usually something that stems from one or two or, or more of the movies being so good that you'll be forgiving for forever. Yeah, man, Godzilla. And James Bond, I think, are like the longest yeah. running ones. Um, it is kind of unfortunate that we have come to think this way mm. rather than looking at films as sort of individual works, but they have to be mm. pieces of a larger tapestry. But some of them are, though. So, so some that's of what them you are. Have to, you have to I'm, consider them that way. And, yeah, right? when, they're, in, they're in that context. But when, when we review films, we do also like to put them in context in terms of when they came out, what they're about, other films that are about it, mm. uh, other films by the same filmmaker. Uh, and, but it's, it's becoming a little bit insular when we're criticizing films based only on events that happened in other films on either side of it. Again, though, and it's, it's frustrating because the actual number of franchise films is smaller than it seems. And the reason why it's smaller than it seems is because we are encouraged often by studio marketing and publicity departments to talk almost exclusively about franchises most of the time. And a lot of people make their living talking about franchises almost exclusively in like YouTube series and podcasts and how we did a whole series that was uh, based on star Wars kind of, mm-hmm. 
because we were using it as an excuse to watch stuff that came out before Star Wars, mostly. Uh, but, um, you know, that's it's it's people love those franchises. People uh, click on those franchises, mm-hmm. those articles, those podcasts, those YouTube videos. And that's a factor. Yeah. And uh, as a result, they tend to get more like they tend to take up more space like in, in than the they culture. actually should yeah, in yeah. terms of numbers because actually there are more non-franchise movies that come out every almost i think every year mm. i haven't run the numbers but based on my, my general understanding there are more non-franchise movies that come out every year they just take up less space in the multiplex often because the franchises take get multiple theaters mm. they take up less space in our publications and on our social media and that's one of the things that's actually been kind of interesting about this year when so many of the franchises took a back seat, you yeah. know, so that they can make more money later, is that a lot of movies that otherwise wouldn't have had as much space have been able to find a more of an audience. So, yeah, been interesting. All right, I think we have time right. for one or two more. All right, uh, here's a letter from Jay Andrew. Hi, Jay Andrew. Uh, hello. hello, Mr. William and Mr. Whitney. That's us. Hi. Um, I've never been a fan of horror movies. Oh. Uh, probably something to do with the copious nightmares I used to have as a child. Mm. I can relate. Same. Uh, I, I had horrible nightmares as a child. Yeah, recurring um, nightmares about child's play. Oh, specifically Ch- about child's that, play? That yeah. doll killed me so many times in dreams I couldn't get. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now that I'm older, a few years ago, I decided to try and watch some of the more iconic horror movies and realized that they aren't as scary as I made them out to be. Well, you're older mm. now. Um, since then, I've dug a little de- uh, little into some of the more iconic horror movies and franchises. The original Omen and Poltergeist are the two that suggest, uh, suge- are the ones that have suggested the most that I have yet to see. Uh, mm. Having now seen a few of these uh, films, it is, and it being Spooky October, mm. came in a couple days ago, uh, I wanted to ask you a classic dorm room conversation question that I never got to participate in when I was in college of the classic eighties and nineties horror characters. Mm. Uh, do you think, <laughs> who do you think you could survive ah. and who would be the most likely to take you out? Uh, personally, mm. despite my childhood nightmares, I think I would survive best against Freddie. I suffer from fairly severe sleep apnea and could never get into <laughs> REM sleep where you dream. If I don't dream, I still get to sleep. I think Freddie has nothing on me. Fair enough. Uh, the one who would probably get me the most would be Ghostface. That is from the Scream movies. Yeah. Uh, Ghostface is a little too erratic and takes serious uh, serious glee out of his murders, and I wouldn't be able to keep running at his frantic pace. It seems the most unpredictable to an unseasoned watcher of horror movies, and he would have my number. I uh, hope you gentlemen are doing well, especially William. Uh, you have <laughs> mentioned you. that in the past few weeks that you have had a rough go of it, and I sincerely hope that life has started to turn for the better. Sincerely, J. Andrew. Uh, let's t- talk to me in 48 hours. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> but um, thank you so much. I really appreciate those kind words and i hope you're doing well too um uh first off the journey through classic horror cinema is often very very fun i have found that a lot of movies that scared me in principle or scared me because of a clip that i saw or a trailer that i saw often when i finally see the whole film doesn't quite get me the same way partly because i'm older partly because when you see the whole thing in context it's a little less dreamlike and you realize how many of these movies are just movies. They're nuts and bolts stories, and there are things about them that aren't all that scary. And actually, that leads into the conversation I think we have about um, which horror movie villain would you survive? And <laughs> the reason why we think we would survive them is because we feel like we understand them. So, like well, we you feel- mentioned, Freddy Krueger. If you don't dream you won't be attacked by Freddy Krueger. This has actually been a plot point in some of the sequels mm. where people take drugs that prevent them from dreaming. I think it was in the third one. Right? Third one that's introduced and then it comes back in Freddy vs. Jason. Right. Um, what was it? It's Hypnosil. That's right, Hypnosil. That's a Schmodown question right yeah, there. That's going to get someday. Um, 
but uh, yeah, so that's right there. You you know the rules, and that's one of the reasons why the Scream Killers are actually kind of scary because they break the rules. The rules don't apply to them, even in um, like Scream Four, where someone says you can't kill me, it would break the rules, and they just kill them anyway hmm. because that's the whole point. They're supposed to like defy convention. Um, when I was a kid. I was scared of a lot of mm. horror monsters. I was scared of Freddy Krueger. I was scared of Jason. And one of the things that actually helped me overcome my fears, the biggest thing that helped me overcome my fears was learning about how movies were made. And like reading mm. Fangoria and knowing that like people made these and these are all inventions and these are all stories of people being told. And I began to appreciate them as a work of creativity and the power that they held over me became like actually like something in their favor. Like, wow, they're good. Mm. But for me, one of the things that really, really helped was I was really scared of Jason for a while when I was a little okay. kid. I, I forget which one I saw. I think I saw the fourth one, or I saw like the I think I saw the fourth one first. Just happened that way. Mm. It's just on TV, and it scared the crap out of me. And it wasn't until I was informed that, as we learned in the sixth movie, that Jason doesn't kill kids, mm. that I was like, oh. So I'm fine. And I'm like, ah, this is great. I don't have to worry about anything. I'm a little kid. And Jason, because he was a little kid who was uh, essentially uh, murdered through negligence by teenagers, only kills teenagers and adults. So I'm good. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, I became a teenager and I was like, shit. (laughs) I'm in so much trouble. Um, So Especially especially if you're sexually active. Look out. Yeah. Or if you smoke weed or drink. So bad. Um. So that's the thing is, whose rules do you not follow? And so for me, if I think about it, of the major horror movie villains, who am I least likely to get murdered by? I think the answer is Michael Myers, because I'm not related to him, and I don't live next to anyone who is. (laughs) That's what happened when you made it all about his sister. When you make it all about his sister, man, that's when you ruined it for me, because it's not going to kill I don't don't fucking live in Haddonfield. (laughs) I'm not on his, I'm not, that's the thing. If you're not like a blood relative of Michael Myers or like on like the ways route to, mm-hmm. to whoever is related to Michael Myers, like you're in like the walking path, you're fine. Yeah. He's not going to kill you. And he hardly ever leaves Haddonfield. I think he did it like once. He went to Springwood. Was it? That's where Freddy's from. No, no. He was in the um, uh, Halloween H2O. He oh, went to right. he went to like find the nurse who knew where Jamie right, Lee Curtis right. was, but like even that wasn't that mm-hmm. far away, I guess. So yeah. What about you? Who do you think um, you survive? Well, here the the, uh, the clarity you feel when you're in a theater or at home watching a, a slasher movie, mm-hmm. and you are uh, calm, you're blissed out, mm-hmm. you, you might have had a few substances, and of course you're thinking completely logically. Oh, I, I could take that guy out. You get really mm-hmm. confident. Um, I think if I were in a slasher situation where somebody with a knife was determined to murder me, I would be dead. Right. Uh, well, that's on my screen where yeah, Dev Campbell says, the, uh, I, I hate slashers because people always run upstairs when they mm-hmm. should run outside. And when the situation actually happens to her, she runs upstairs. Yeah. Why? Yeah. That's a room. So, yeah. It's I, just knee jerk. I'd be in a state of blind panic uh, too much to even recognize that I was in a slasher situation and I wouldn't be able to sort of think clearly. 
would I have the wherewithal to fight back to pick up a knife and stab somebody? No, I don't stab people. <laughs> it's not my instinct to grab a knife and stab people. It might be in a movie. It's like, oh, I wish if I were that protagonist, I'd grab a movie. Well, yeah, you're a movie protagonist. Yeah. Mo- movie protagonists stab people all the time. Uh, it, it's And it's really easy because when you stab a person, it's really just a watermelon wrapped in a shirt filmed in close-up. It's, <laughs> it's easy to stab someone in a movie. Uh, so... I have calluses everywhere. I, I don't I think there's there's a like a, a killer or a scenario where I would survive realistically. Now, if I'm a character, which, which one? Which one are your odds the best at? Hmm, That's see. the question. Like, who are, who are you least likely um, to be killed by? I most likely to be killed by Freddy, just because I have very vivid dreams and he just get me right away. Okay. Um, yeah, that sucks. Uh, Mary Lou, <laughs> <laughs> you're well. You're well out of high school now. Yeah, it seems yeah, like she, you're probably not gonna. Oh, but she she targeted adults too. Yeah, know. but it was always tangentially related through the high school. Mary Lou was the uh, ghostly serial killer of Prom Night Two and Three, two very underrated horror movies. Yeah. Prom Night Two and, and Prom, Prom Night Two is getting a little bit of clout, but also check out Prom Night Three. It's just as good. I don't understand why mm. Prom Night Three doesn't have the same mm. like you know sort of revived. Mm. appreciation because it's just as crazy and wonderful mm. um but yeah but yeah if you're not in that high school or like the parent of someone in that high mm. school you're probably fine yeah i'd, I'd, I'd be killed by jason I'm, i was a boy scout i can sort of find my way in the woods but he'd yeah. still find me he'd i have a bad knee me. he's just gonna just okay. hunt me down it's done yeah my, um, michael myers would be able to sneak into my house and get yeah. me without me looking uh, um freddie would if, get me horribly i have nightmares all the time sucks, i I, so. I would vomit myself to death before uh leatherface got to me like, <laughs> i'm gonna put you on a meat hook oh you're dead okay i'm gonna put you on a meat hook anyway yeah um yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Godzilla. Uh, <laughs> I mean, here's the thing: we live on the coast. It's really just as likely no, that it show up here. We we live in California, though. We've had earthquakes and fires and floods yeah. and droughts and recessions. And Godzilla, just bring it on. Yeah, uh, like, what we, else we, you got? I could survive Godzilla. I know how. I know yeah. how to deal with a Godzilla. I've been through. You know some to, we all know how to deal with a Godzilla. Mm. We get our jet jaguars. Yeah, yeah. What do you do? This is the, this is California. Gavin Easy. Newsom gives them all gives one to every citizen. <laughs> Everybody here's got a jet jaguar. But jet jaguar was actually a robot, right? Or was jet jaguar like a like a suit? No, it was, it was a robot. It was, but it was like a standalone like robot, or was someone piloting? No, it? no one was piloting Jet Jaguar. Okay, Jet Jaguar was uh, in, in. But Mechagodzilla on, was being piloted, right? Uh, it depends on which Mechagodzilla. Some <laughs> some were being piloted by evil aliens. Sometimes okay. Mechagodzilla was just an evil Godzilla. Um, in one of them, Mechagodzilla was a, a robotic exoskeleton built around the the skeleton. Of the uh, first Godzilla that was still laying on the, on the oh, the I ocean remember floor. that. That was cool. They, like salvaged actually, yeah. the Godzilla skeleton and then built a Godzilla. I feel like, that, I feel like that's the what bones. they were building to at the end of the more recent Hollywood version, Godzilla: King of the Monsters, when they like yeah. found King Ghidorah's head or whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah. That that new movie was so disappointing. It's like oh, I, I liked a lot. Yeah, you, you, you got you like you have all the superficial elements, but it doesn't. I, it's just not fun to watch. I, the one part of that movie where I was just like. I feel like you missed the point is where Godzilla, the symbol of nuclear destruction and man's uh, hubris uh, is uh, saved. And ergo, the world is saved by blowing up a ton of nuclear bombs on it. And I'm like, (laughs) I feel like we've lost track of the metaphor. (laughs) I feel like we've just sort of missed it a little bit. It's okay. Anyway, Um, I digress. 
Uh, hopefully, hopefully that answers that question. Mm. Uh, I think I've time for one, long, one last oh, one. One last letter. Okay. Um, here's, here's one that just came in. Ooh, um, good afternoon. We got to read uh, it. Bibbs and Herr Commissar McCool. <laughs> like Herr Commissar. Um, Don't turn around. Oh, oh. Yesterday, in preparation for your upcoming 1940 edition of Only the Best, uh, we're working on that right yeah, now. Yeah, we'll doing late this week. I watched The Great Dictator for the first time. Oh, I haven't actually. I haven't, I'm going to revisit it, but Same. I haven't seen it since college. So it's, it'll been, be a few, it's been a while yeah. for me too. Uh, when considering a film as a whole, I believe uh, this is not among Chaplin's best. It's wildly inconsistent, and I don't think Chaplin quite had command over finding a satirical voice through the spoken word. The best moments in the film, in the first 98 percent of the runtime, more on that in a minute, are in fact representative of physical comedy. The very famous ballet with the inflatable globe and the running gag of Chaplin's dictator Heinkel po- uh, posing for a painting and a sculptor simultaneously for about 15 seconds at a time. Yeah. Um, just when I was about to write off the great dictator as well-intentioned but ultimately failed attempt by Chaplin Dobrado's forays into political comedy, that very, very famous last speech happens. Chaplin's Jewish barber has his identity confused for the dictator Heinkel, who is in the process of conquering the neighboring country. The barber, who has been escaping con- uh, escaping a concentration camp, has met up, uh, has kept up the ruse in order to not get caught, but is now expected to deliver a glorious victory speech to the troops. Instead, Chaplin, while still dressed as Heinkel slash the barber, drops all other semblances of character and delivers a brutal, impassioned four-minute speech to the audience condemning both fascism and plutocracy as well as the the divisions imposed upon men, specifically by religion and race, and rallying all to unite and fight against tyranny. Specifically, the following line was such a punch to my gut that I began bawling. And here's the quote, let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Suddenly, Chaplin's speech became very, very relevant to the climate of 2020. In fact, while I was, uh, I completely get that in 1940, Chaplin's appeal was very pointed and, uh, and directed to an audience living in the United States, which was maintaining neutrality in World War II. The speech almost works more for me when viewed with the context of today, when the enemies Chaplin speaks of aren't so easily labeled and identified by swastikas, but maybe among your neighbors, your community leaders and stakeholders and your government, specifically a certain executive branch. <laughs> Uh, the day before Election Day, when I am writing this, I felt that Chaplin was very much speaking to me and not to my grandparents in 1940. So my very long-winded intro leads to this question. What films have you two watched that have had moments, speeches, incidents, actions, or themes that felt more relevant to you when you watched them than when you viewed them in the context when they were first displayed? Mm. As always, I love you both, and I love all your podcasts. Also, should you ever want to, uh, to consider a fan as a guest on all our yesterdays, I'm putting myself out there <laughs> for Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Uh, sincerely, Eric. Um, that's a great point. And, and honestly, that's a big part of history in general, whether you're looking at the history of cinema mm-hmm. or the history of just the world. It's the reason why we study history. Yeah. Um, and I think too many people are taught that history is a collection of dates. You have to remember the year that this mm-hmm. battle took place or the, the year that Abraham Lincoln was, that's, I mean, it's, you should, you should like not get that wrong, but mm-hmm. that's not as important as understanding context and what we can learn from it and how yeah, it relates it's... to today because human nature is often very consistent throughout human history and we keep making the same mistakes over and over again oh, and, and uh, we can learn a lot from seeing what we did in the past it, it's and this is an especially big problem here in the united states uh, mm-hmm. we have notoriously throughout our history been uh, kind of isolated from the rest of the world by design in a lot of cases yeah that was a that was a That's huge a, political movement for a yeah, long time yeah. cry and uh 
I've, I've been abroad. I've traveled a lot. And uh, people in other countries are just more aware of international policies and interna- just mm-hmm. international history than here in the United States. I, if you're I've an met people who are not American who know more about American history than yeah, me. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I actually it, like American history. Uh, British comedian Eddie Izzard has a lot of bits about that. It's like uh, he talks about how uh, French characters in American films play like really kind of sexy, esoteric characters. And he says it's because of the debt of honor to General Lafayette. And he looks at the American audience. You know who he is, doesn't you? You don't know who he is, do you? You don't know your own history. And you like, can he tell from the o- that the audience yeah. isn't mad at him. You can tell that no, most no, of them do not. Because you know, we're just ignorant of our and, own history. And, and Hamilton hadn't come out yet, so we didn't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, it happens. Yeah, so, we, we lose hmm. our history. And we and when we experience our history, whether it's the you know the actual factual stuff that happened or the art that occurred in it, Oftentimes, we can be very surprised at just how relevant it can be. And that speech in The Great Dictator keeps coming up for that reason. It's a very universal speech. Uh, And uh, the one that that I keep coming back to, and Mm. I think uh, the one that I think is just an all-around indictment of government malfeasance, especially when it comes to war, is Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove. Oh, yeah. it was about a very specific time and place in the United States. It was about the arms race. It was about uh, uh, the balance of power was the phrase they used. Yeah. That is, every major nation now has to have the ability to end the world with a bomb. Otherwise, there's an imbalance of power. One will be able to dominate all the others. So let's make sure everybody can end the world. What a great idea that was. Yeah, and that way no one will be stupid enough to actually do it, except someone will, won't they? Yeah, and... uh, Because people are idiots. And of course, Dr. Strangelove was saying, of course, if you have all of these bombs, somebody's just going to do it, even if it's just some insecure guy who can't get it up one day, Mm -hmm. which is the whole theme of Dr. Strangelove. Uh, Even though it was written... During a very specific time in the 1960s in the United States. When, when the idea of nuclear devastation was yeah. literally on people's minds and people thought it could happen at any moment. Yeah, for, like, can you imagine growing up like that? If like, you're young and don't remember it, can you imagine that sense that, like, seriously, the whole world could end at any second? Yeah. We yeah. kind of feel it now, but it felt like literally, like, nuclear fire. Yeah, could have that, happened at any minute. That was it. Was also uh, that feeling was really big uh, during uh, the Reagan administration during yeah. the Cold War. That you know Russia and America both have bombs and we're going to bomb each other. Uh, you can see movie after movie after movie about this nuclear fear. Yeah, uh, and and that's a, a big element of Watchmen, which I didn't think really made it self clear in the movie version. It's so really clear are, in the comics. The movie. If you read the original little, comics, little you get here. that kind of nu- this apocalyptic nuclear fear a lot more clearly than the movie. Even though the movie is almost a direct translation, it's pretty like, faithful in most circumstances. But I think they well, they, like they, in, they, in a, on a on a surface aesthetic. Yeah, I mean it's is, all but, it's yeah. mostly in there, mm-hmm. but yeah. Um, but yeah, I feel like this idea of war being this really foolish endeavor being perpetrated by idiotic males mm-hmm. is a concept that will ring true every day. When when Dr. Strangelove came out, you know, we hadn't gone through Watergate yet. There was still this sense that the people who were in charge, a politicians, a president, or congressman, whoever, they must, by virtue of their station, mm. have a certain amount of dignity, respectability, honor. Mm-hmm. And some do. Some still do. Some did then, I'm sure. But I think Dr. Strangelove was a bit ahead of its time in how it basically in point, pointed out and indicted the fact that, listen, 
every, everyone's just a fucking person mm. and politicians are just people and they're insecure and fallible and, fallible yeah. and sometimes they're oafs. And we've had, and listen, this is not new. If you look at American history, we've had a fair, our fair share of oafs in the White House. Okay, it's really, that part isn't new. It mm-hmm. feels like it's been a while since we, but it really hasn't. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, and so I, I agree with them. The one I was thinking of isn't as old as Dr. Strangelove, but it's, um, you know, it's old by today's standards. Um, it's Jaws. Hmm. I was watching, I, I love Jaws. Jaws okay. is a great movie. I stand by Jaws. I think it's an incredible motion picture. Um, it has a lot to answer for, for in terms of how it's demonized sharks. <laughs> but uh, as as a, as a motion picture in a vacuum, it, it, it it's incredibly hmm. well crafted and brilliantly written, acted. Even though the production was a mess, and but for for a long time, I appreciated the film on a variety of different levels. When I was young, I appreciated it as a killer shark movie, and it's a great killer shark movie. Hmm. Later on, I appreciated it as a bit of a send up of capitalism, right? Because I mean, we're 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 gonna keep the beaches open, even though there's a killer shark out there. Why? Because we need money. Oh, yeah. Capitalists. And <laughs> would go, go would go to a beach when there's a dangerous pandemic. I mean, shark running around. And that's yeah. the thing. I rewatched. Uh, we we went to uh, there was a drive-in theater. Uh, it's called the Mission Tiki. It's about an hour drive away from us, uh, but it's the closest good one mm. that we've got. And so we've been a couple of times uh, since the pandemic is hit. And we went on Fourth of July. Uh, and they had a double feature of Jaws, great 4th of July movie, because it's set on 4th of July, uh, and Tremors, which isn't so much a 4th of July movie, but it's a fucking great double feature. <laughs> um, but when we were watching Jaws in the midst of this 2020 pandemic, all of a sudden this whole thing about like, ha, well, what a great parable. Of course, we no one in their right mind would ever do this. All of a sudden you're watching it and you realize that Idiot politicians who value economic prosperity so it will help them get elected, endangering the lives of countless people Mm. on the slim hope that maybe luck will prevail and nothing bad will happen is actually really on the nose right now. <laughs> and that one would just all of a sudden Jaws went from being this this really great movie from the 70s to being like really now. Yeah. Like really just contemporary. And if it were made now, people will say that's too on the nose. People aren't going to accept it. It would be like when Spielberg made The Post and everyone's like, oh, it's too contemporary. Uh, you mean relevant? <laughs> yeah, the, the word you're looking for is relevant, but like, mm. it's too contemporary. And I'm like, no, that's not necessarily a problem. <laughs> Sometimes it actually just, it's just a gut punch. Um, and I feel like, you know, I don't know. Like, it felt like when you watch Get Out and you see this how salient and relevant a movie is mm. in its opening release. And Jaws is just like, Jaws is still hitting that hard. Mm. Uh, but there are many other examples. I'd be very curious, actually, to hear from our listeners about this. Are there older movies and I want to make sure that we're keeping this to films that are distinctly of previous generations. So let's maybe stick to movies from like 1979 or older. And 79 is pretty generous, but like let's let's stick to the last like let's get out of the last 40 years. Are there movies from previous generations, generations that you feel like you're not a part of, uh, that were from your parents or your grandparents' generation or further back, that you have experienced and you felt to yourself, wow, this isn't just a good movie. This really speaks to my experience right now for one reason or another, maybe an obvious one, maybe an unexpected one. 
I would be very, very curious because I think that's one of the most important things that we can acknowledge and examine as film critics Mm -hmm. is not just which older movies are good, but which older movies are really able to connect with us across you know, the sea of time. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, uh, that's uh, a great way to judge a work of art. Yeah. There's going to be something universal about it. We, we, we were talking ancient... earlier about the canon. And I think mm. the films that stay in the canon or the films that fi- find their way into the canon mm. are the ones that have that. And sometimes the movies that are removed from canon stop connecting to us. Yeah. Because yeah. all of a sudden we realize just how shitty something about them was mm. or something just ceases to be relevant and now seems and naive. I'm always interested at that moment when a film sort of exits the canon, like, mm. especially one that's talked about a lot. Um, I feel that happening with like certain pop properties. I, I because we haven't had this big sort of year, one whole year without big franchise movies. Yeah, people are like diving for scraps for rumors of movies that haven't come out yet, and it's kind of interesting to watch uh, the conversation change and interest sort of contract in certain circles and. Mm. Uh, how when we're not in a state where we're constantly celebrating something, how it ceases to be immediately relevant in a certain significant way. I've talked about this before. Like you think about every year, how many movies we talk about for months on end because they're big Oscar contenders or they're nominees. And then a year later, how many of those films have not been mentioned since Oscar night, even the winners sometimes they're just not been mentioned since Oscar night. Like, and they're good movies. A lot of them sometimes they're not, but sometimes they are. The artist is fine. There's a good movie. I think the artist is actually hindered by being a best picture where i think we'd be celebrating yeah. and trying to get it noticed because it's a very sweet film but like something like the theory of everything oh it's God, it's yeah. it's a it's a it's a handsomely produced film the performances are good i think it's heavy-handed but it won the academy award for best actor it was up for best picture people were celebrating it and when was the last time it came up in conversation just casual yeah. conversation as a reference not even talking about stephen hawking does it come yeah. up yeah yeah yeah, yeah. No, it's not it, it just hasn't stuck around, has it? So, and that's yeah, I feel the I'm same way about to, uh, the imitation game, which I think was the same year. I've, I've, I've yeah. occasionally heard that one reference, but that's that's pretty rare as well. Um, it happens. Yeah, it's they're just gone now, um, and it, it's because they they just stop feeling relevant, don't they? They stop feeling like something that we need to discuss. This is one of the issues that I have with Oscar punditry is that sometimes I think we go so hard on talking about why a film is an Oscar contender that we sometimes lose sight of whether or not it really needs to be. And I feel like sometimes well, Oscar industry is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, something oh, gets it, Oscar it, nominations because we say it will. It absolutely is. Yeah. Uh, people are already making predictions as to who will be nominated for Best Actor or Actress at next year's Academy Awards. And they're all movies that haven't been released yet. Yeah. It's like those are the ones that come out during Oscar season. Really, because I've seen a lot of wonderful performances already. Yeah. And why are we not talking about those? Oh, because the conversation has to feel and look a certain way. Uh, I had the worst the conversation. I had, an, I had a conversation with an Oscar pundit once, mm-hmm. and they were talking about like what who's going to be nominated for Best Actress this year. And I, it was a long time ago, but I was like, well, and they didn't mention Kate Beckinsale for Love and Friendship. Okay, epic performance should have been nominated. One of, that was one of the best films of that year. And they said, uh, oh, well, I'm not mentioning them because they're not going to get nominated. And I'm like, how the fuck do you know? And don't you have a responsibility as a pundit to like? Keep have everybody in the keep, conversation, keep every yeah. good performance in the conversation, so that if they're good, they might be. And uh, as I feel like, as a pundit, you keep names in the conversation. That's yeah, actually kind yeah. of a responsibility. And and 
I think if we focus less on who will win and maybe more on who mm-hmm. should, maybe the relevant films will be more highlighted as opposed to the films that look good but like look don't actually the, um, stay in the consciousness. Exactly. But anyway, that's a whole rant. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, we've strayed uh, yeah, a, a, a little a little bit from the topic. A but, lot from the topic. No, but the idea that uh, you know, can you watch a film with uh, old politics that speaks more openly to the present? Yes, uh, those movies come along all the time and. Uh, yeah, my my pick would be Doctor Strange Love. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if we and thought about as, this at length, I'm sure we could come up. Yeah, with we could more. come up, we're talking we come about up with a lot more. Head. But but Minus yeah, Jaws. Th- th- this idea that um, yeah, some films are going to speak loudly across generations. Sometimes they'll fade from the consciousness and then become relevant again. Something mm-hmm. like uh, The Handmaid's Tale, for instance. Uh, it was a movie. Uh, it was a, first it was a book. Yeah. Uh, it, when was it published? It was like, actually, it, I don't know. It was like, eight, I think it was the early eighties. It was published. I, I'll uh, look they, it up. They, then they made that, uh, that feature film, uh, early nineties, like 90, 91. Yeah. And then it, then it wasn't talked about for a, a long time, except you know, for 85, the, 85, the book came out. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and then they made that, uh, the new miniseries, which is on Hulu, I think. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen the new miniseries. Uh, I saw some of it. Yeah. It, was, it was good. Yeah. It was um, a bit too dour for me. And I was like, I appreciate all of this, well, I mean, but it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm depressed now and yeah. I need to watch... I need to watch something else. Well, I'll watch Food Wars. Well, Margaret Atwood is not exactly a bright, chipper writer. Right, she and that's, that's not a critique sort of, yeah. at all. No, it's, it's just not what I, was, I didn't have yeah. to write about it. It's not what I was in the mood for, mm-hmm. so I watched something else, but it was good. Yeah, yeah. because of... of you know, reignite interest in the show, and you know, occasionally something will happen in modern politics where everyone says that's just like the Handmaid Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, uh, there were even protesters dressed in handmade outfits. Yeah, just a couple of days ago. Yeah, uh, when uh, when the Supreme Court, the Supreme, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Judge Barrett was confirmed to the Supreme Court, just sort of really quickly in the middle of the night. Anyway, that's it for We've Got Mail. Thank you, everybody who wrote in. We greatly appreciate it. We didn't have time to read all of our emails. We never do, but we try. And we want to make sure we give every email as much conversation as we possibly can. Um, Again, the email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We don't have to talk about political stuff, but it sure does seem to come up a lot, especially lately. Uh, But uh, we can talk about anything you want. (laughs) It doesn't even have to be related to movies and TV. We'll talk about anything. Um, And uh, yeah, so letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. That's the email. Uh, You can also tweet us at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, We also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash criticallyacclaimednetwork if you want to get exclusive podcasts and vote for future podcasts as well. Uh, There's a lot of different options there. Podcasts about Star Trek, Batman, Disney, uh, the Oscars. We talked about that. Uh, Commentary tracks. We just dropped a commentary track for Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow um, and many other things besides patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network thank you everybody once again um we're gonna get through this <laughs> fingers we are crossed gonna get through this if you're listening to this the day after the election or depending on how it goes a long ass time after the election you you, you know more than we do right now <laughs> this is this is an interesting time capsule this is a we're talking this is literally this is 12 34 a.m on Tuesday, November third, right now. That's when. That's when oh, this yeah, is. We're, good. we're, we're, we're this. right on the cusp, right here. We don't know anything right now, but we're all hoping for the best. Mm-hmm. So uh, stick with it. We're gonna get through this one way or another. Uh, and uh, sincerely yours, Bibs and Whitney. <laughs>